I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. In this two-part story, we will learn how Becca's marriage came to a close. She then found another guy she thought would bring all kinds of new energy into her life, but he brought her a lot more than that. We pick up with Becca beginning to tell her story. I've been looking forward to this. I've never really been able to share to share much of this, and I, I've told a few, couple of people here and there, but um, never the whole story. So this is the first time that I've really been able to talk about it. I think it's going to be really healing for me, and so I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you said that. That's very candid, very, very truthful. Those people who have come on and told their stories usually come away feeling a sense of catharsis. They feel like they go from the very beginning and kind of roll through it, all the bumps and scrapes and scars in some cases, unfortunately. By the time they're finished, they just feel like they kind of like took a bunch of junk and dumped it off somewhere. But your junk is someone else's gold. People will hear a story Afterwards, they say, you know, I never thought of my relationship as abuse until I heard that. But yes, I really was. That, that's exactly right. Because I have listened to a lot of podcasts. I mean, like your, I've listened to all of yours and I've read, I've listened to your book and I've listened to other podcasts about abuse. And, you know, I always just sort of thought that I just never really considered it that it was abuse. And I'd hear people talking about things and I'm like, well, geez, that's not as bad as some of the things that I went through. And I'm sitting here thinking that I'm not a victim and it wasn't abuse, but it makes me realize that it it was and it was bad. (laughs) Extremely well put. From our standpoint, my daughter was killed 18 years ago. Someone was talking to me probably a year ago, I mean, at the 17-year mark, it was going on and on about me being a survivor. And I thought, well, I don't really think of myself as a survivor. And they said, no, you're what's known as a secondary survivor. You're feeling it. Whether you think you're feeling it or not, you're feeling it. Definitely. I, I would definitely agree. Yeah, it's really the truth. So maybe give me a kind of a snapshot of what life was like before you met this person who you know, sent you down that path, the eight-year relationship path. Okay. A lot of times you hear people grew up in homes that were abusive or, you know, things that went on. And that was, that's totally opposite for me. My home was, my parents were married. They've been married for, I like, I think 53 years now, and they've had a great relationship. I mean, their marriage is the type of relationship that I would love to be able to have with somebody. I think they have so many positive things about their, you know, their marriage and their relationship. And so I've never had to like, been very naive and sheltered from this sort of, you know, from domestic abuse and drugs or anything like that. And so, but I did meet my ex-husband when I was 14, dated all through high school and college and ended up getting married. And we were married for 18 years before the divorce was final. Had two children. And I think that we just, I was very, we were too young. I wasn't 
quite mature enough. I really didn't need to be getting married at that point because I still had so much to, neither of us really experienced life the way a lot of people get to experience, you know, at that age, at that young age, I just never, I never really dated much um, in college. I worked to help pay for college. So I really didn't, I mean, I enjoyed college, but I didn't go out and just like experience life and enjoy, you know, and the way that you're supposed to when you're in college. When we were married, it felt like it was more of a thing that we were just, that's what was supposed to happen. We were on the path of what was supposed to keep, you know, occur. We dated for all this time and then you get married and then you have kids and, and, but um, we basically lived more like roommates. You know, I took care of the kids. He went out and made money. We didn't really have a relationship. Uh, we didn't have that love and partnership or, you know, it, it, we were very, we lived very separate lives. Almost more like a more functional relationship. Like he goes out, makes money. You're back there keeping the home fires burning, so to speak. Exactly. We didn't really communicate a lot. Kind of like a business partnership in a way. Yeah, exactly. We kind of did our separate things, except for when we went on vacation, you know, then we were together as a family. But otherwise, we were pretty much just doing our own things. When we got divorced, I mean, I made some, I made a pretty big, I think we both, of course, made a lot of mistakes in our marriage, just not doing the things that we needed to do to help care for the other person and to make them feel needed and wanted and, you know, just the way that you're supposed to make your partner feel. And I ended up, I cheated on him and I had an affair. And that's something that I felt incredibly guilty about. I still feel guilty about that, you know, and, and I think that's sort of what led me to that next stage of my life where I ended up with somebody that my, my abuser I think that I just felt so much guilt over what I had done. And I was in a really vulnerable place because I'd hurt so many people that I cared so much about. And then I met this guy who just, you know, he, he and also coming from a marriage that didn't have that relationship that you want to have in your marriage, where there's that love and that desire and that caring for each other and that passion. And then going into this other relationship where he did give me all of those things, you know, so I jumped right into that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you feel like your heart's beating again, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was, um, he lived right across the street from me. So that was convenient. You know, everybody talks about the love bombing and, and he was, he did that full force. You know, it was, he was really good at it. He made me feel incredibly special. Everything that I'd been wanting just like, where's this guy been, you know, and, and everything that I needed and wanted was right there um, until it wasn't. <laughs> so I, I guess it, what it, it gets found out that you have this relationship and then the original marriage blows up. Yeah, uh, we were sort of in a bad position anyway. And then, yeah, and then it, then I had this, I had this affair and cheated on him and and we are on good terms. So we don't have you know, we don't have issues with each other or anything like that. So he's a great father. So then you're kind of moving on to this Josh fellow who becomes your, your next guy in your life who does make your heart beat. And so he's in the midst of what examples of love bombing in this case might be what? Geez, everything. I mean, he tell me that I'm beautiful. Tell me how amazing I am looking at my 
my work and telling me how great that I was at it. You know, I like to think of things as like, I like to be able to visualize things. And one way that I visualize love bombs is it's this person's taking all these things that are exactly that you want, you know, exactly what you want. And they're wrapping them into these beautiful, they're like lies, but they're lies, you know? So it's like, love bombs are lies wrapped in these beautiful little packages and they're placed inside of your heart. And it just, it it feels so good. And your heart is so full of all of these beautiful, you know, things that he's giving you, but eventually they're going to explode. And when they explode, it's really difficult. And that's exactly, you know, he's telling me all these amazing things and making, I mean, he's, making me breakfast and bringing it over because he lived right across the street. So he'd make breakfast and bring it over to me. He just made me feel so wonderful and amazing, you know, better than I've ever felt before. Just everything that I had dreamed of. One of the ways that people describe love bombing, it's kind of everything you want, but it also comes rapidly at you. Very fast. You know, if somebody would tell you after they've been around you and they, you know, you've been out a few times, you've done some things, you've seen them in different venues and it's, you know, time has passed, might be a matter of months, but maybe they finally slip out that uh, they love you. And I've spoken with some people on this podcast that they've been out twice and this person's gushing with, I love you. And like, wow, okay. I spoke with somebody just recently where two months into it, he's proposing. You know, it's like, and he's got the ring. Here it is. Yeah. And so he's just kind of all the goodies that you ever wanted, but they're compressed down into a short time period. Mm -hmm. You think you're in love because it's everything you ever wanted, but the assembly line of goodies is coming fast. So did, did you get some of that too? Oh, for sure. It was, even though he lived across the street from me, I didn't want to actually, I hadn't actually officially met him or wanted to hang out with him for about a month. We just sort of talked for a month. And then as soon as we did, it was like within two weeks or so after that, that he told me that he loved me. At first I was taken aback, you know, like, like off guard that it was so fast that it, it surprised me. And I'm the type of person that it's like something happens and I'm like, oh, you know, and I kind of like adjust to it and go with it. And then later when I have a moment to think about it, I'm like, wait a second. And then it sort of catches up with me. And so the next day I had texted him and kind of was, you know, explaining to him, it just feels like it's really fast. You know, this already happened. And I just kind of wanted to make sure that everything is, you know, I just need to be careful because I kind of come out of a place that I really need to still heal from, you know, and I just want to make sure that he is what he says he is. I mean, basically all these things I, I, and I said this stuff to him and he seemed really offended by it. And that kind of, all of a sudden I was like, you know, yeah, I just need to let things kind of flow and not be so concerned about things. I kind of like talked myself out of those feelings that I was having. And, and I've just sort of always kind of decided that you choose to trust somebody or you choose to love somebody, you know, that that stuff is sort of a choice and that I was just going to make the choice to, to love this man and go, you know, and to dive right into this relationship. So kind of take some of the details about it and throw them out the window and go with your heart. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. These things that I was worried that I was concerned about, which I should have remained concerned about, I just sort of pushed them out of my mind and chose to move forward. And that's part of it too. And and then what happens oftentimes is that the person who will become your real abuser, if you start to push back, they might come back with something like, look, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. I mean, I, I you know, let me know now. I'd be more than happy to you know, I don't really want this to end, but if you're indicating you don't want this to go on, then what are we doing? And that's what happened. You know, that's pretty much exactly what happened. And and I was like, well, I don't want to mess this up. You know, I finally find somebody that's exactly what I want. So yeah, yeah. He <laughs> seems to think I'm okay. He thinks I'm more okay than I think I'm okay. Mm-hmm. So that's good. So so now we're seeing each other one way or another. Mm-hmm. When does it start tipping towards things that that might bother you a little bit, kind of break through the surface of like, wow, that didn't feel good. Or There were red flags all along. I just never chose to, I, like I said, I was so naive and didn't pay attention to anything just because I was more focused on the things that I liked and just chose to ignore the things that didn't really feel right. Yes. He was a meth addict and that was something that I absolutely had no experience with at all. I didn't, I'd never, to me, meth was something that I I just never really ex- thought that I would ever have anything to do with it, that it would ever be a part of my life in any way. I mean, I really didn't drink at all at that time. I mean, I, I hardly drink anything now. I've just never been somebody that was on that scene and mm-hmm. never been around people that were. So I had no idea the way that meth affects somebody and what it can do to a person and how they behave. And there were just little things that if I were, if I knew more about it, then I probably would have caught them. But I was just so excited about the challenge. Like, like I was excited about the challenges because I was like, I wanted it. I see these things happening, but I'm like, I can be a positive person in this guy's life and I can really show him, you know, show him love, how it feels to have this great life. And you know, so the first, oh, five or six months, things were actually really good because I was choosing to overlook all that stuff. The first time that something really, that I really saw his side, you know, his angry side was when his son was there and his son was three years old. We were putting him in the car after we went to the grocery store and his son was talking about his stepdad and he called him daddy. Mm. And that caused Josh to become incredibly angry because his son was calling this other man daddy. Sure. And so he didn't say anything. He just walked around, got in the car. We drove home and he was just angry. So I told him, I'll take your son to my house for a while. We'll just hang out there. You go calm down. After a while, we went over to his house and there was just glass all over. He'd broken a bunch of stuff. He punched a hole in the wall. And so I ended up calling his mom and asked his mom to come and get his son so that he could. I just didn't think that he needed to be there with him that night. And she and I kind of told her what happened. And she said, well, that's that's his angry side. That was the first time that I really had any experience with that. So he actually took a baseball bat, didn't he, to things in the house? 
Yeah, I ended up, baseball bats were something that I, I wouldn't, if I saw anything that looked, that could be used to swing or hit something, I would end up hiding it or getting rid of it completely. And a baseball bat was like something that, he didn't look at a baseball bat as a baseball bat to hit baseballs with. He looked at it as this is something I can destroy things with. And weapon. Exactly. He used the baseball bat to, you know, in the house that we had lived in when we actually moved in together in that house, I was fixing it up and I had my kitchen counters retiled. And one night we were talking and things were going, things were fine. There was no issue. I mean, things just seemed fine. And then I accidentally called him by my son's name because I was talking to my son earlier. Mm -hmm. So I'd accidentally called him by my son's name and he got so angry and he took that baseball bat and he smashed the corner of the tile counter and he broke it and he swung it and hit the, he broke cabinet doors and dented the wood floors and just with this baseball bat did a lot of damage just because I'd accidentally called him by the wrong name. My son's name. It's kind of hard to understand how that's a trigger. Yeah. We talked about, or you talked about that he was a meth addict, but when in the relationship did you get that news? He didn't actually tell me what was going on until a year later. And like I'd said, if I would have known more about the drug, then I would have known those signs. But the way that meth affected him, I mean, he was, it just made him psychotic at times. And I really honestly thought it was something that it was something mentally that he was dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I was doing all this research, trying to figure out what it was, you know, why is, why does he behave this way? And thinking I wanted to um, help him figure out what was causing him to behave this way and have these, these outbursts and this just, I mean, he would do things and say things sometimes that I would just, I would just honestly sit there and think, you know, this is, this is insane. I don't even understand how your brain is going in this direction. It just didn't make sense. And it was, I mean, there, and just like I said, psychotic and so much anger, so angry. He could destroy, he could do so much damage in such a short amount of time. And then he would just leave. And then I'd be left with this like war zone, this destruction. What do you think it was perhaps in his background that brought that out? Because, you know, you hear about the cycle of the abuser and, and you actually come to find out that is a learned behavior. Oh. You don't, you're not born as that person. You become that person. But oftentimes because you're modeling behavior, you've seen. Absolutely. His dad was a meth addict and his dad is abusive. His dad is still an alcoholic and um, abusive in his relationship that he has with the girl that he's with now. Josh had gone to live with his dad when he was 15 and his dad was always living with other women and abusive to them. And, and so it's definitely something that he learned and he picked up on and I'd see his dad doing the exact same things and saying the same things, you know, to his fiance and everybody would just ignore it. It was weird. We were sitting around one day and he started I mean, his fiance is also an alcoholic, so they're in a very toxic relationship and very abusive on both sides. But we were sitting around and it was me and Josh and his dad and his parents and then his fiance. And he was just glaring at her and call her names and saying the most horrible things. And everybody just sat there. And I ended up, I just got up and left because I couldn't I, you know, and when I explained it later, like his dad even came over and asked me, what's wrong? And I said, 
the things that are causing so many problems in my relationship right now are things that you're doing. I said, he is, he learned these things from you and you're still sitting there doing them. And everybody's acting like there's not an issue and like nothing's wrong. And this is all her fault. I can't sit here and watch it knowing that this is why this is part of the reason why this is such an issue. Mm -hmm. So how did he deal with that? I mean, that's pretty tough for him to get the truth like that. Oh, he, I mean, he didn't really say a whole lot and he, they never, it was, I guess he just never really has admitted it. I mean, he can admit that they have issues and stuff, but he'll blame it on her usually. And he can say that he has problems controlling his anger, just like my ex can, but they're not going to, they don't do anything to fix it. So they can admit that it's there and that it's an issue, but then they just go on with life. Like it's going to go away and it won't go away or like, it's not a big deal. Or yeah, that's the way it is. That's the way I am. And uh, pass me another beer. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you're cruising along with this man. Here you are trying so hard to get your kitchen and your place pulled together. And this guy goes around smashing things and also yeah. in a case like that, what do you do? I mean, do you uh, go back to the store and buy some more tile after you pry up the old stuff and try to make it what it was? Yeah. I mean, luckily I know how to do those things. So I, I would always just, I, I didn't, I had my kids and they didn't live with me at that time because I was trying to fix up this house and they, their dad had a very nice house and he was in the same town. So they lived with their dad, but we still talked to each other all the time and saw each other all the time, you know, just as much as if they would have been there with me. And I mean, I'm thankful that they weren't because of the situation that I'd gotten myself into. And, and I knew they'd be coming over or something. So I'd stay up all night long fixing things and, and, you know, trying to patch this hole in the wall and using a hairdryer to dry the coats of mud and paint and everything between, you know, and, trying to fix things so that when my kids would come by the next day, then everything looked normal. I was really good at hiding all of that stuff and repairing it and trying, I mean, of course, not everything. They knew there was destruction. I mean, I couldn't hide everything. There was so much of it. It was obvious, but I don't think that any of them knew as much as what it was. I mean, there were sometimes, there was this one time that I was working out of town and my kids came to the town that I was working in, which was like 30 minutes away. And we went out to eat and went to the movie. And I told Josh that that's what we were going to go do, that we were going to go eat. And then we were going to the movie. So I wouldn't be back until after 10. When I got home that night, my house was just destroyed and he was nowhere around. I drive up and the lights are on. I had a big window by my dining room table and that was broken. I had this metal bench that was thrown into the middle of the yard broke some cabinet doors, everything. It was just, there was glass everywhere, destruction everywhere. This was just like the night before Thanksgiving. And this was the night that I, that he admitted to me that he was, had been using meth. And I still didn't know that he was using drugs. So I was like, I thought he was having some kind of, like I said, some kind of mental breakdown or something was going on and everything was destroyed and um, he was nowhere around. And so I was kind of concerned about what was going on with him, why he was acting like that. Well, he thought that I was with another guy. He was convinced that I was cheating on him and that's why I wasn't there. And that's why Mm. he reacted in that way. He ended up that night breaking out his, the window in his pickup, 
just causing destruction everywhere because I had ended up finding him. And that was what he had told me that he thought that I, he, you know, I was cheating on him. Obviously I was with, an, you know, another man, I wasn't with my kids. And so at that point I just went home and I just was scared. I just waited for him to show up. And it was, it, there were so many times that I would just, I'd go to bed, I'd, you know, I'd get in bed and I would just sit there and basically wait for him to come back and have my shoes and my keys, my phone, everything sitting right beside my bed so that whenever he did show up, if he was angry, then I could grab everything and just run out of, I'd grab my dogs and we'd run out of the house. And he showed up that night at four o'clock and was just acting crazy and grabbed me by the neck and pushed me up against the wall and held a knife to me. And, you know, he would, he was slam, he would like slam doors and he would literally take the doors and push them against the wall over and over until the frame would break. Mm. He would do it till he purposely broke the doors. He broke three or four doors that night. This was after I'd already cleaned everything else up that he had destroyed from that night. Then he comes back and he ends up doing more destruction and he, but then he grabs me and pushes me up against the wall and holds a knife to my throat and is threatening to hurt me. And then he just eventually kind of fell on the floor and started to cry and told me that he had been using meth. I was like, at that point, I was so convinced that it was something that he needed, that there was some, you know, like I said, some sort of mental issue going on. And so when he admitted that he was using meth, I was actually relieved, which sounds really weird, but I was actually relieved because I thought, well, now I know the reason and now we can, we can work on this because we know exactly what it is and you can go get treatment sure. and we can get this and we can start working on this, knowing, knowing what the problem is. So that was just the start of in and out of treatment centers and in and out of just, it still went on for, it was just back and forth. Like, I think he was going to be sober and then he'd be back at it again. He would, I guess, go into a rehab, do 30 days, 28 days, one of these things, yeah. and then come out right back to it. Yeah. After that, he, I ended up helping him pay to go to a treatment center and he went to a really nice one, was there for 30 days, came back with all these promises and everything that he was going to do. And I think that lasted for about a month before it started in again. And then he ended up moving away to a different town for a little while the person that he was going to work for was his cousin and I had a conversation with his cousin and we talked and I kind of explained to him what was going on and I really hoped that he was going to watch out for him and take care of him well it ended up that he was just moving in with his drug dealer <laughs> basically so he's living with this this other guy and his cousin and this other guy is the one giving him all the drugs or he's buying drugs from and so Things got really crazy at that point. And he ended up coming back. I told him at that point that he couldn't live with me. He had to have his own place. And so I I was so I was so codependent and I was just helping him all over the place, thinking I was helping him all over the place, but I was only allowing him to have more money to spend on drugs, you know, by helping him. So helped him get his own place which he totally destroyed every place that he had lived in. He just, he just destroyed. It was just holes in the walls, broke the oven. Everything was broken. By the time that he was, he left, 
he just left those people with such a disaster, you know, to have to, to have to repair and fix. And so it was just in and out of that. I was so determined after getting out of my marriage and I think feeling so much guilt for that, you know, that I was just so determined to take this man and help him and make, I don't know, just, just, I just thought if I could just save this one person, you know, but that was never going to (laughs) happen. You look back on what you did, you know, with the first marriage and you feel so bad about it that you want to somehow feel like you redeem yourself. Maybe, you know, you redeem your actions. Yeah. And this next guy comes along, this is going to be a tough one to solve. But if maybe you solve it, you maybe won't fix the first one, but you'll at least feel better about you. So you think, okay, here's my reclamation project. And then you wind up becoming the enabler of the second guy because he makes the mess. He blows up the place. You go back and glue it back together and he just keeps doing it over and over. Was he pretty much ready with the big apology after every one of these explosions? In the beginning, he never apologized. But I think I taught him that if he apologized, then he would, it would help him be forgiven. You know, I think that I kind of, I I think that in a way I taught him to apologize, but it didn't mean anything. He would apologize. He ended up saying sorry all the time after that, but it was just the word. It never came with any actions. It never meant anything. It was just a word. And he would always come back with, all these promises and lists of things that he was going to do and, and actually maybe go and do it, you know, for a little while until he felt secure that I was around again. And then everything would stop and go back to the way it was. Now this relationship with this Josh fellow, how long did this go? It was ongoing in and out. Like it wasn't constant, but we were always in contact with each other still for eight years. So it was the first five years is when we lived in the same, in it was my hometown. We lived there. I ended up moving because he had gone to a treatment center for six months. And I told him at that point that when he got out, if it didn't, if he started drinking or using again, then I was, the only way that I was ever going to get away was to just move. And so I moved to where my kids we're going to college. And so, and I kind of wanted to go there anyway, move anyway. So mm-hmm. one night after he had, it was a couple months after he got back from his, this treatment center, he came home and he was drunk. And right away he said, he starts asking me, are you going to move? Are you going to move? And I said, well, I just, I don't know. I don't really want to talk about it right now because I knew that he was drunk and and having a conversation with him at that point was not going to go anywhere. So not productive. Yes. Yeah. It would just make him angry. And so I said, well, I just don't think that we need to talk about it right now. He was going to be angry no matter what at that point, whether I talked to him about it or not, because if I would have talked to him about it, that would have made him angry, but then also not saying anything, Mm -hmm. you know, made him angry. So he slammed the door and he slammed the door so hard that a piece of the frame came off. It's the part of the wood that like stops the door from going all the way past, you know, it's like, okay. Yes. So that came off of the door. I will never forget this moment because it feels like it was slow motion. He picked up that piece of wood and he kind of looked it up and down. And then he looked at me 
And then he held it like a javelin and threw it at me. And it hit me in the forehead oh. and left a, a scar that's about an inch long and a quarter of an inch wide on my forehead. Oh my, that's horrible. Yeah, and it's bleeding everywhere. And I ran into the bathroom to, and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. And I go into the bathroom and look and I'm like, oh my gosh, look what you did, you know? And, and as soon as I'm like, look what you did, then he's angry with me. And so he's like, you're accusing him of something. Yeah. So then he's calling me names and um, I'm like, I have to go to the hospital. You need to take me to the hospital. And he's like, I'm not taking you to the hospital. So he went in the bedroom and went to bed and I drove myself to the hospital and got, had to get stitches. And then I, I lied about it. <laughs> I was going to say the hospital is going to ask you how that happened. I lied about it at the hospital. What story did you give them? Well, I was working on doing like, I think I can't remember exactly what I was working on. I was always working on something because it seemed like every house I lived in, I tried to fix up a little bit. Uh -huh. And so I said I was using my saw and the wood came back, flew back and hit me in the head. And I lied to my whole family about it. And that's probably the thing that I feel the worst about with my family is because that was a lie that I had to keep telling over and over because I had two swollen eyes that were, you know, one was swollen shut, black and blue, this huge scar on my head. And right after that, we were going to a family reunion. Like a week later, we were going to a family reunion. Oh, gee. And he was coming with us. And this was the first time that he was going to go and meet my family. And, and I just, I told everybody this lie. And I just felt so guilty about saying it over and over again. I just tried to like, not even talk about it. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, and he'd even like a couple days later, I'm sitting there and one eye's completely swollen shut. And he just kind of looked at me and he said, I still love you. And, and it's just, you know, and I'm thinking you still love me. And I'm like, you did this to me, uh, you know, and, and he almost would sometimes when I'd have an injury like that, he would almost look at me like he was proud, like he loved me more in those moments. It, it was weird how just seeing like his face and just that he seemed like he was, he was proud in those moments, you know, like proud of me in a way. It was just weird. It was, it's hard to explain it, but it was weird. So I don't know why that moment I didn't immediately just decide that was the moment. I think I was just so ashamed and embarrassed and everything that I lied about it and that this had happened. And um, sure. Yeah. That's terrible. So it was a couple months after that though, that I finally just said, I'm, I just decided finally, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm moving, you know? And I told him, I said, I'm moving and you're not coming with me. He wasn't living with me at that time. He was pretty much homeless, you know, cause he wouldn't, his house was so bad. He couldn't go home to it. So he just walked mm. around like he didn't have a house. So I, when I moved, it was a month later, he ended up in the state hospital for threatening suicide. Then he's in the state hospital. And since he didn't really have a home, 
he didn't have any place to go. I mean, his family wouldn't take him. He didn't have a home to go to. Somehow, somehow he ended up convincing me to come here. So I moved to get away from him. And then a month later, here he is again. And I don't, I'm, there's so many times that I end up back in this situation. And I'm like, how did this happen? You know, I, I thought I was out of this. Now here I am again. And I don't even know how this happened. How am I here again? So then here he was again. <laughs> in a case where he threatened suicide, who does he threaten it to? Was that to you? Oh, everybody. He threatens it to everybody. There's been times I've called the, the cops on him multiple times to do a wellness check. And his mom had called him that time. That was always his first go-to. If he wasn't using drugs at that time, I'm going to just go out and get high. I don't even care anymore. So that was always a threat. Or I'm going to kill myself. Always, always he went to suicide. And so, and you hate to ignore something like that because what if this is the time that it's true? But at the same time, when somebody's telling you that, constantly every single time something doesn't go their way then I can't call the cops every week saying oh he's saying this again it was just a, an all-the-time thing and if I didn't respond there was this one time that I we were he was angry and so I left to go out to eat with my kids and turned my phone off I was so anxious the whole time though I was trying not to be but I was so anxious the whole time and then um, after we were done I looked at my phone and his friends were messaging me. His family was messaging me. Everybody's wanting to know what's going on. Is everything okay with him? He's posted all this stuff on Facebook, you know, and that happened multiple times that other people were reaching out to me going, what's going on? Why is he posting these things on Facebook? So I go home and by that point already, there were the cops were at my house. His mom was at my house. His friends are at my house glasses everywhere again everything's oh, again so that was the first time that he went to the state hospital for that and then and this time yeah his his I wasn't even there so his mom had called him and he ended up there so there were multiple times that other people would start reaching out to me wanting to know why is he saying these things and then I feel like I can't you know now I have what am I supposed to do at that point I'm like I can't just say oh he always says it you know he's just kidding yeah don't don't pay attention yeah to him. He <laughs> he's a kidder yeah and so when we had moved and lived here where he didn't really have those friends and stuff then he was doing that one night and I had to go check on him because he ended up here again living in his own place and so I I ended up having to go check on him and I walked in, he's posting on Facebook, I'm bleeding out or whatever, just all these ridiculous things. So people are messaging me and I'm like, his mom, I think his mom called me or something. So I went to check on him and he was sitting in his closet, spitting on the floor. And it was just like, he'd spit and there was like a little bit of pink in there. Like, I don't even know where the blood came from, but it wasn't anything. I walked in and I looked at him. I said, I just needed to make sure that you were okay. I'm calling the cops to come and check on you. And I left and called the cops to go over there and check on him. And of course, once the cops show up, oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. I was just, then it's nothing. So then he's okay. I don't know how many times I've called the cops to do a wellness check on him just because he's threatening suicide. And I'll tell him, I can't listen to these things and ignore you. Because what if this is a time that it's true? So if you continue telling me, telling me this, I'm either going to, I'm going to call your, the cops and I'm going to call your family and let them know what's going on. So then he stops. Wasn't getting the reaction he wanted. Exactly. 
in the beginning you did. Yes, but yes, then... right. It didn't work anymore. Exactly. <laughs> so how did you finally draw this to some kind of uh, escape? Well, he ended up, I had to throw him out of my house, you know, and he ended up living on his own here and he lost that home. So he was completely homeless here for a long time. And then he ended up, his dad came and got him, which surprised me because his dad never really has shown up for him to help him. So, you know, I, so his dad came and got him, which really wasn't a good situation for him to be in anyway. Mm. <laughs> but he got there and he realized that it was just as bad there. And he did end up going to treatment at that time. I mean, and, and so it's always been kind of in and out, in and out. You know, I was always, we were just always, I was always He's always messaging me, like maybe every couple of weeks or every week. So just always keeping that contact going, keeping it yes. alive. Sure. And I was always just trying to be nice. I know that he's trying to get sober, so I don't want to give another reason for him to go out and drink or, or use drugs and go back to that lifestyle. So I'm always being nice. And then next thing you know, it's just more and more and more. And then I'm in this in a situation again. And I think one thing that finally kind of it wasn't like the very last, but it was the one thing that really sort of pushed me over the point to where I was more checked out of it, you know, was he, things were going well because he went to get sober. And I already sort of divided things of during drugs and after, you know, after drugs. And so um, he had gone to treatment again, and this time it actually was He's been mostly sober I, for a couple of years. I say mostly because I, I know that he's had times, you know, where he's still, he's kind of fallen back, but then he got back. He did pull himself back out right away and got, you know, which is good. He's been living in sober living since then, but things were going well at that time. Cause I thought, finally, he's not using drugs. We can really see what this relationship is going to be. You know, I had a lot of hope for that time. And it was about eight months, things were good. And uh, it's almost like he just wanted to get through Christmas. And as soon as Christmas was over, then he started picking fights. And then I'd, re I'd figure, and when he started doing that, I usually knew there was probably something going on because not only was he abusing me in all these ways, he was also cheating on me continuously, you know? And so, I knew that more than likely there was something going on. That's why he was picking this, this fight, you know, and uh, so, yeah, and, and, yeah. and accusing me of doing things. And almost always when he would start accusing me of doing things, it's because he was doing those things. Yes, exactly. He had his phone was under my phone plan at that time. And he started accusing me of all these things all of a sudden and doing all this stuff. So I had gone and looked at the phone numbers. And of course there were like all these text messages to the same number or, you know, so then I found out he was talking to other girls again and not being honest again, which I don't think he was ever honest. So I called him out on it and he denied, 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 of course, but till he finally, finally admitted something. And at that point, I was just like, I'll never be able to trust you. You know, I mean, I, I wanted to trust him with not using, you know, when he wasn't using drugs, I wanted to be able to believe that things would be different, but he'll always, he'll always 
tell lies. He'll always be needing to find that next person. Mm -hmm. So we're broken up. It was probably six months, I think. But like I said, he was always, he was always keeping it alive, always texting. How are you telling me things that he was doing? That was good. All these things. So we had kind of kept that friendship going. The thing that really, really cut it off for me this time that I finally was like, this has got to stop. It was only a couple of weeks ago, honestly. So he got mad at me because I wanted to go to lunch with a friend and this friend is a male and Josh has like these severe double standards. So he's friends with a girl that is his, he has as if his profile picture on Facebook is with her. He talks to her all the time. They go to music concerts together and everything, but she's just a friend. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to lunch with this guy who is my friend who doesn't even live in the same town as me, but he was coming back. And so we were going to go to lunch. I mean, I rarely ever talk to him. And at first Josh acted like it was okay. And then the second he got off work, he started sending me messages like F you, F everybody, you know, all this stuff. And it was just because I was going to go to lunch with this guy. So that for me was, that's, that's, that's it. You know, it's never going to change. And I mean, and so I finally told him, I, I can't talk to you anymore at all. We can't remain friends because that's impossible. You know, we can't, I, I just, I, I, you can't keep messaging me every once in a while just to keep this thing going. I'm like, you can go, you can break up and the next week be in a relationship and in a month telling her you love her. I can't do that. And so I'm like, the only way that I'm ever going to get through this is just not talk to you at all. Mm -hmm. For the first time in eight years, I don't miss him. <laughs> I know it's only been a couple of weeks, but I've never felt like this. I've always missed him or wanted to still have that contact in some way. I don't miss him. I don't have any desire to speak with him at all. I just want him out of my life so I can move on and have this chapter of my life over. It's pretty amazing. This this is all very recent stuff at this point. Yeah, it, it's just ongoing. I mean, it was, I mean, it hasn't been much like the last several months. It hasn't been like a relationship or anything like that, but it was still like a friendship. We'd still see each other. We'd still, but I mean, he kept wanting it to be a relationship. He was, he was actually doing pretty good with most stuff because I'd actually had boundaries. And so he was still in that stage where he was trying to convince me to be in a relationship with him. So he was doing a lot of things right, but couldn't keep it going. The jealousy is the thing that he can't. That's the thing that's really hard for him to control. <laughs> so, and then, and when I knew that he couldn't do that, then I was just like, this is something that I don't want to do for the rest of my life. This concludes part one of two parts with Becca. In part two, Becca continues to be abused, but hopes somehow her boyfriend and abuser will drop his dangerous habits so they can settle into a better relationship. Thanks to my guests for offering their stories on the When Dating Hurts podcast. This is your platform where victims, survivors, and others who have experience with domestic violence can freely add what they have witnessed. Through these stories, although challenging to listen to, we underscore the prevalence and horrific behavior of abusers over their targets and victims. With knowledge comes enlightenment 
and empowerment. If you feel your story should be included on this podcast, please email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.